0: Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, my guest is the CEO and founder of MBH Corporation, Callum Lang. Callum, welcome.
1: Hey, Marcus. Great to be here.
0: Callum is responsible for building a fast growth company that's achieving the level of scale that technology companies are, but with mature businesses using an approach called accretive investment. So what I'd like to talk to Callum about is that but before we get started on that, let's start with our favorite bugbear, which is venture capital and private equity. Why is it a busted flush? And why should people be extremely cautious before they ever decide to bring these lovely vultures into their business?
1: There's a leading question, if ever you ask. <laughs> <laughs> I share your sentiment on this a lot. And I think... Private equity and venture capital are are very different business models, but they each represent a a significant threat to business owners. And I think having an awareness, and, and look, there's not, there's good people in both those industries, and both of them are a game, but I think it's really critical that business owners understand that probably the game you're playing as a business owner is very different to the game that venture capital or private equity is playing so i guess my challenge with private equity is that private equity's glory days was 20 years ago and they did some incredible deals and they solved a problem in the market and then as with anything else when somebody does something well and creates a lot of money lots of people go into it and consequently what's happened is that you've got a huge amount of private equity people chasing the same amount of deals and so on the one hand that means that if you are 100 million 200 million or above small business then you are probably being able to get a higher return from private equity because they're all outbidding each other trying to do these deals the problem is because because they're now paying twice as much as what they were paying 20 years ago and their model is about leveraging up, they're having to apply twice as much debt to these businesses as they were 20 years ago. And so what's happening is you're getting these really good businesses, and they're just being saddled with insane amounts of debt. So pretty much every day, a, a company hits the wall at the moment. And all of those companies that hit the wall are struggling under massive amounts of debt. And it's normally because they're PE owned, it's a good way to kill a business. Why starting up with that much debt? Can you explain
0: why they need to put companies into debt? If they're just piling money in, there doesn't seem to be any logical reason to put them into debt, except that it's for some accountancy jiggery pokery in order to help them fiddle
1: the valuation. Is, is have I got that wrong? No, it's. I mean, it's basically it, it's about return. It's about trying to get the biggest return possible with the minimum. Investment. So if they can put in a dollar of their own money and nine dollars of bank financing, and then they can a few years later flip that business on to somebody else at a higher price, then their return is amplified because they're using other people's money. Now, where this is revealed as a complete shell game is that. Last year, one third of all private equity exits were to other private equity firms. So basically, what's happening is because they're paying so high a premium for these companies, there's no advantage to taking the companies public anymore because they're basically price to earnings is about the same. So, what they're doing is they're saying to their buddy who also owns a private equity firm, Look, we've got this company, we will sell it to you because I need to return funds to the lps to the investors in the fund and then i'll buy two companies off you in a year's time so basically me as a private equity firm i've bought this company i've saddled it with tons of debt i then sell it to you marcus i take the cash that you had raised from your investors i take that cash i give it back to my investors i then raise another fund i say look how clever i am look i I paid you this money back. So I'll raise another fund. The investors gladly pile in again. And then I go and buy two more companies off, off you with a view that I can then move it. So it's basically, it's a it's a shell game that uh, is being played. And unfortunately, like there's not. I like to think cartels are a little bit more sophisticated. <laughs> 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 the problem is it's I just wrote a a newsletter uh, about this to our investors talking about it's very easy to get disconnected from the humanity. And these businesses are, are real people and there's jobs and there's families and it just gets very disconnected. And every PE firm decides that they want to settle it with more debt and strip out more costs. And yeah, it's just that it's not about longevity. And I guess this is this is sort of my theme that we'll keep coming back to is I'm much more interested in longevity of companies rather than growth for the sake of of growth. And the employees in private equity don't need to think about longevity. They just need to think about their terms and getting back to... Being able to return money to their uh, investors, so to hell with the consequences, sadly,
0: okay, so can you explain uh, the difference between a common or ordinary share and a preferred share?
1: Let me pull apart venture capital before I because venture capital is is definitely kind of a, the guys that would use this as well. Huh? so venture capital is different from private equity. Private equity takes more more mature businesses. They still want growth, obviously. Um, They still go in. They they believe that they can add value to the business. Venture capital is all about adding value to the business, at least on the face of it. And venture capital is taking bets on younger companies, typically tech companies. And what venture capital has promised its investors is that they will give them a three times return on their investment. And... That's laughable, but over the last 40 years, venture capital, apart from two years, which was 98 and 99, venture capital has lagged the S&P 500 quite significantly at, at times. But I think what venture capital has done phenomenally well is play the PR game. So they've convinced the rest of the world that they're very smart players. And, and in effect, there's actually less than 2% of venture capital companies in the world that uh, get anywhere close to delivering good returns. The majority of them deliver terrible returns. And yet, if you are a startup, you're told that what you need to do is get venture capital because they're the smartest guys in in the room. So the venture capital model is they find these companies, they, they make a bet on it, but that bet has to outperform and massively outperform. So if they put a couple of hundred million into your company, they need to get a three billion market cap exit in order to cover the ratio of losses, because the majority of their companies will not succeed, will will not be unicorns. Uh, And basically the kind of very rough maths on it is that if they invest in 10 companies, one needs to massively, massively outperform, two or three will kind of poodle along and do okay and the rest will go bust. And so what they have to do consequently is only make bets on companies that have the potential to grow exponentially. And then they have to put enormous pressure on every company they get involved in to grow exponentially. And this is really where I think both private equity and venture capital fall down is that that they have this obsession with growth for the sake of growth. Mm -hmm. And it's, as you know, the number one reason why most small businesses fail is that over expansion, they run out of cash, their eyes are bigger than their bellies. And that's perfectly understandable if you've got your biggest investor and shareholder saying, Go crazy, you know you need to you need to do global domination tomorrow it 's not enough to do this and and I think the um we work is a could be a cautionary tale, but let's be honest we've had <laughs> twenty thirty thirty years of these cautionary tales of putting lo- large amounts of money money in young male funders and founders and and watching them do crazy crazy things but, but the story is that Adam from WeWork went to uh, my son, and said, I want to raise 10 million. And he said, "SoftBank said, you're not thinking big enough, we'll give you 100 million. And (laughs) yeah, 27-year-old founder or whatever, you're not going to say no, are you? So you start making decisions based on on that. And the trickle-down effect is when I meet, and I desperately try and avoid them, but when I meet early-stage startup founders, All of their questions are around funding because what we've kind of been taught by the Silicon Valley world is that you come up with an idea, you then go and raise funding for it. And that's backwards to how business works in the rest of the world where you come up with an idea to solve a problem for your customer. So all of your questions should be about how do I solve that problem for the customer? How do I create enough value for the customer. And what's happening is you've got Hallelujah. all these on- entrepreneurs, but you've got all these entrepreneurs. And the only questions they're asking is, how do I get funding? How do I get funding? And if you keep asking the wrong questions, you're always going to get the wrong answers.
0: So tell me this then, if you're a smart, savvy founder, what are the questions that you should be asking in order to build a strong, stable business that has longevity built into it?
1: i think it very much depends on what you're trying to achieve and i don't necessarily don't necessarily want to dismiss the whole kind of tech startup silicon valley game because if you know how to play it it's actually quite a good game to play but it's not really a sustainable one it's not really one that creates value in the world it's much more about There's a kink in the system that's exploitable right now. I've played in that that space before. I personally choose to not play in that space. What we like working with, and what what we do is we help businesses, typically the businesses that we work with are 20 years old. They're very boring businesses like construction and education and healthcare, and they're well established and they're profitable. And most of the founders. Don't even call themselves entrepreneurs. You know they're business owners. They they understand their clients. They've solved a problem for them. And the fact that most of them are twenty years old means that they've spent the last twenty years making decisions that are based on the longevity of their company, not necessarily on growth. That's why they're still in business. And it's uh, I think as a as a question. To ask yourself, as that business owner, is what decisions can I be making that are potentially would be able to create a multi generational business rather than a business that, that grows for the sake of of growth. And I actually did quite a lot of research into companies that have survived multi generations, and you know there's there's very few of them, to be honest. And you start looking at the companies that are. For example, over, over a thousand years, and you kind of get down to a few. What's interesting is that pretty much divided 50 50 between religious iconography, so kind of building crosses and temples and, and that sort of thing, and alcohol.
0: are <laughs> <laughs> there, like, often quite closely linked. <laughs>
1: yeah. But the, the story that um, I think it's the most. I guess upsetting in a lot of ways is that there's a Japanese temple builder and it was 1,483 years old, the old, oldest company that's known in, in the world. And seven years ago, they went bust. And the reason that they went bust was that the current management decided to diversify away from temple building and start investing in property and borrowed a bunch of money to invest in property at, at the wrong time. and yeah, they timed the market wrong. The the company went bust, and one thousand four hundred and eighty three years of legacy got wow. got destroyed. Imagine being the CEO that made that decision. And this is Japan as well, so yeah, it's probably yeah, uh, there's a lot of loss of face there. There's a lot of loss of face, but that wasn't a decision born of how do we make sure this is still a multi generational business. This was how do we. Grow faster? How do we get ourselves bigger bonuses in the, in the short term? And it just comes down to kind of where, where your priorities lie about the, the questions you ask.
0: I was discussing the, this question with my pal, Tony Groom, who's a turnaround specialist. And the conclusion that we reached was that the best businesses are simple, generally, they're debt free, cash flow positive, and they are utterly relentless in their pursuit of solving customers' problems. And I I see this in companies like UiPath and OutSystems and Thycotic. They spend all of their time focused on the customer. They stick very tightly to an ideal customer profile, and they don't try and sell outside of that. In fact, they turn that kind of business down. They focus on having conversations with the customer. The product is developed with the customer in partnership with them. They're focused not only on rapid growth, but on creating strong fundamentals and making sure that any investments that they do have, and in fact, this is a really interesting theme. In each of their cases, the funding has been to initiate the acquisition. And if they did have to go back, for any more money. It was to uh, help develop within their core. And they've used the same investors time and again. And the investors don't interfere. The investors might help, but they let the management run the company. And they're very focused on organic growth. It's about going out there, building the sales and marketing operation and really focusing on sales so that they're generating the, uh, the growth organically. And you can achieve massive scale that way, but yeah. you have to focus on the right end of the problem. And you, you know, the amount of money that I see wasted, for example, on marketing and on this land grab for logos where they discount massively, and that, that has a huge long-term effect on your cash flow. And also on your levels of profitability, which means that you're not really building a strong business. What you're building is an illusion. So if you were advising somebody who is going for a job with one of these startups and equity or options was part of the deal, what advice would you give them in terms of the questions that they really should be asking about the equity?
1: To be honest, it would depend on their age. Because if, you, if you're younger, then going and joining a fast growth startup is a, yeah, it's a great thing to do. You're going to work crazy hours. It's, there's a lot of advantages to it. I mean, I think in most cases, always be very skeptical of your stock options. That they're very rarely going to be worth what you think they are. And depending on your Jurisdiction where geographically you're based, it can be an incredibly expensive problem. I mean, I was—I cut my teeth at the height of the dot-com boom, and uh, that was really when the whole stock option thing kind of kicked into to gear. But I had friends in the US that earned millions and millions in in stock options because they were early employees of internet companies, and then they got taxed on the the value of the, those shares at the height of the dot-com boom, even though they couldn't sell them because the shares had since plummeted. And these are 24-year-old kids that ended up bankrupt because of, of that. So there's, there's those downsides. I think the other thing, I was actually just having this conversation very recently about angel investors. And I think there's kind of a, a naivety or not necessarily understanding the game that you're playing. So whether you're an employee that's holding stock, or whether you're an early angel investor in a company, you're probably playing a very different game from the next level of investors. So the next level investors, for example, might be venture capital. Venture capital is playing a very different game from angel investors. Angel investors like to think that they are helping in some way, that they're putting in not just money, but they're supporting the ecosystem they're giving back and then venture capital doesn't really care about that what they're trying to do is hit these massive returns for their lps and then if you get into the public markets which is kind of what what everyone hopes is this uh, this heaven that you're supposed to get then then you discover that actually you get into the public markets and now you're playing against hedge funds and various others that are also playing a completely different game and and can make as much money from shorting you and spreading negative rumors as they can from backing you so I think uh, you know stock options are a nice to have and they're a very useful tool for early stage businesses to try and keep people on side it's a little bit like giving great job titles uh, <laughs> you know it's a good way to make people feel special without paying them more yeah it, approach with caution and a healthy dollop of skepticism for sure. I read an article
0: today about a technical VP who worked his ass off for four years and he had 2% to begin with and then that got diluted down to 1% when they were sold for 100 million and they got nothing because they had ordinary shares and um, the investors got preferred shares and so with all the dilution and the preferred hangover there was nothing left for any of the employees and that seems to be depressingly commonplace
1: yeah it's just people people playing different different games um it's why with, with our model we only have one type of share and uh, very very deliberately and a lot of the reason why Small businesses come and and join our platform and swap their private stock for public stock, is so that they can give their senior team actual tangible stock. And there are yeah, it's got the same voting rights as as everyone else, and everything's above above board. But it, there's a lot of people that are paid a lot of money to come up with ever more complicated ruses to uh, make. Certain investors more money than other investors, unfortunately.
0: Okay, well, talk me, talk me through your model, because this is
1: fascinating. Interestingly, given the, the topic of this podcast, we've just been, uh, of, there were 67 newly listed IPOs in Europe last year, and we are top three in terms of fastest growth by revenue and by profit. So the the one that beats us on revenue doesn't have any profit, and the one that beats us on profit starts from a much smaller base. But basically, our our model was trying to solve a problem for not tech companies, but the vast majority of well-established, well-run, profitable small businesses. And it was really solving a problem that we had had as business owners ourselves and that we saw amongst our peers, which is you build a, a great interior fit-out company or kitchen installation company, and you've built it up over 20 years. It's a good business. It's churning out a million, two million in profit. But you're a baby boomer, and 70% of all small businesses are baby boomers, owned by baby boomers. So they're all coming up for sale at the same point. The price of all of those businesses is dropping off a cliff. You basically discover that there's actually not really that many buyers out there And really, your only solution or the number one solution that people end up doing is selling it to a trade sale, doing it, selling it to a bigger player in the market. And those deals are always structured as a three-year or a five-year. But the problem is, if you've been running your business for 20 years, you're not used to being an employee. And quite frankly, you're not going to make a good one at this stage of your career. We're just not very good at being told what to do, especially when it comes to our baby. And I'm sure you've seen this many times, Marcus, people sell their company, they think it's a great deal. And six months later or 12 months later, they've been fired from their own company or they've quit in disgust because basically they've spent six months trying to protect their staff and protect their clients from their new overlord. And eventually they just go, yeah, this is too hard. This isn't what I signed up for. And they end up leaving a lot of the deal on the table.
0: I had a client who did exactly that. He sold his business. And he was working his earn out. He smashed the numbers because I was working with him, hit the sales quota in six months, and they fired him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so he he walked away with next to nothing. 15 years took him to build the business. No, I mean,
1: I've literally got... Dozens of stories like that a very close friend of mine who she really should have known better sold her business to uh, one of the big four consultancies and the reason that they bought her company was because she was so entrepreneurial and the reason that they fired her six months later was because she was so entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's uh, yeah it's just it's it's crazy so basically what we said is look there's got to be a smarter way if you spent 20 years and look like, yeah it's a kind of that the bargain that we sign up to as entrepreneurs is look, we'll create value for everyone else. We'll solve problems for everyone else and create all this value in the in the world. But yeah, you know, we want to get rewarded for it at some point in the future. Well, if you're going to get screwed out of that at the end, what what have you spent the last 20 years sleepless nights and remortgaging your house and all of that shit for? If you're going to get screwed at the end. So Basically, what we said is, okay, we will create a publicly listed company exclusively for the use of good, well-run, profitable, small businesses. And in effect, what happens is the business owner swaps their private stock for public stock, but carries on running the business exactly the same as before. So it's their brand, it's their hiring and firing, it's their culture, nothing changes. And the way we structure it is is a perpetual earn-in. So the more profit that company contributes to the holding company, the more shares they earn over time. And so you have a very equitable solution. You can bring companies in from different industries, and everyone's on the same multiple of EBIT deal. And those companies that overperform earn more stock, and those companies that plateau will go backwards, there's no penalty for that, but they obviously don't stock. And, And so you end up with this very unique structure. And all of the elements of this have been done many times before, but it's just, we've kind of put the entrepreneurs at at the forefront of this and and said, look, whereas private equity and venture capital always start with the assumption that they know better, we work on the assumption that the person that spent 20 years building a kitchen fitting business actually knows that industry better than we do. So let's just let them run the business. And every small business is unique and inefficient and weird. Every small business has, you know, we, we call a Muriel in HR that's absolutely useless at her job, but keeps the entire company together. Um, now, if you're private equity, you come in and you fire Muriel because she's useless at her job, but then you lose half the team because Muriel brings a cake in every Friday and keeps everyone happy. So our, our view is that let's just let the business owner run the business the way they want to run it. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting that because we don't try and merge all the systems and cultures, we don't suffer from any of the typical mergers and acquisitions indigestion. We can bring companies in and then move on to the next deal. And those business owners now have a peer group of other business owners that they all have a vested interest in each other's success, but they can't tell one another how to run their businesses. So there's yeah there's brilliant kind of cross-sharing of of help and connections and and things and from the market standpoint you know the fact that we're the top three fastest growing plc in Europe even though the underlying businesses are dead boring and uh, not very glamorous at all but are the three drivers of value that uh, appeal to investors is the first one is these accretive acquisitions so accretive acquisitions basically means that we're Buying EBIT or buying profit at a lower multiple than the multiple that we're trading at. So as long as you're doing that, the every deal that you're doing, it may be dilutive from a percentage perspective, but the earnings per share goes up with every transaction that we do. And if we can add in most of the companies that we approach are sort of doing a million of EBIT or above. So if you're adding one of those every month your eBIT is growing up and your earnings per share is growing up quite nicely. So accretive acquisitions is is a key driver of value. The second value of driver is actually the organic growth. A lot of these small businesses are being passed over for big contracts for no other reason than they're a small business. And yet when they become part of a PLC, they now tick the procurement box and can suddenly start winning much bigger contracts and bigger portions of budgets so last year our organic growth was 19 percent. so there's a 20 year old companies coming in and then growing 20 percent in their first year with us just by virtue of being able to go after those bigger companies and then the third one and the, the third one is ironically the one that the market obsesses about which is synergies and yet we put it third because Market obsesses about synergies because synergies look fantastic in textbooks they very rarely work out in real life because humans get in the way so it, yeah it might sound fantastic to take this company with a great product and combine it with this company with a great distribution channel but if those companies hate each other or there's a culture clash it's just not going to happen and so what what we say is look when a company comes in Yes, you've got, you know, there's 20 other companies in the group or 15 other companies that you could potentially work with, but you don't need to work with them. Work with them if you want to. And yeah, you know, it's in all of your interests to be more profitable because that's how you earn more shares over time. But it's up to you when you do that because you know the stress level that your current staff are under. And you know that, for example, they've been working on their own distribution channel for the last 12 months and they're never going to accept this new distribution channel anyway. So, but actually, what what does work very well is sharing of best practice rather than synergies. That's yeah, you know, having business owners that you have a vested interest in, and and especially the last few months with COVID, the way that the companies have all come together and said, hey, look, you know, this is what we did, uh, this is how we communicated to staff. In retrospect, that didn't work particularly well. I'd recommend doing it like this and. We've gone and spoken to our bank, and they told us, you know, we've got a good relationship with us. They told us that if you're going to apply for these loans, you should be doing it in this way. And so that that kind of sharing is brilliant. And I think, you know, being a being a business owner can be a pretty lonely place. And so coming into that environment and suddenly being part of a a group, and then seeing the growth, it's quite an exciting model.
0: Do they form effectively a mastermind group?
1: Or is yeah, that... exactly. Yeah, it's, it, yeah, and it's, kind of, it's like the ultimate mastermind group. I and mean, we call it the board you couldn't afford. <laughs> you know, you've got this 20-year or more veteran entrepreneurs. The thing that used to wind me up as an entrepreneur was everyone's got advice for you. It goes through phases. I mean, you, you'll remember this. It's, there was a time when you had to have an app. It didn't matter what you did. Oh, you've got to have an app. There's a time when, when you've got to go into China. Yeah, just you've got to go into China. You just get $1 off everyone in China, you'll be sorted. <laughs> um, and it, it's, it's, all, it's all very well for people to give you this advice, but they've got no skin in the game. And actually, spending six months developing an app that's completely not what your clients need is a complete waste of time. Trying to go into China can be a complete waste of time. So when you turn to your peers in in an agglomeration and you say, hey, look, we've got a client in India and they want us to go and open an office and we we don't know anything about doing business in India. Does anyone have any advice? Nobody's going to give you flippant advice. What's more likely to happen is somebody will say, well, we've got a branch office. Let me get a desk set up for you. Go and spend three months there. We'll introduce you to everyone we know and then make a decision on it. Because they don't want you to go and waste two million and two and two years of your life finding out that uh, that's the wrong play. It's a really nice collaborative environment and, and works very nicely.
0: It sounds like a better alternative to non-execs as well.
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I have a healthy skepticism of most non-execs as, as well. Not least because a lot of them, again, come from this mindset of they know best and it's, I've worked for McKinsey, I've got an MBA, I, yeah, I can go in and tell the business how, how to run and actually um, we sort of just have a very different, different approach to it that doesn't really fit with that kind of ego approach.
0: I had an interesting conversation with the managing partner in McKinsey years ago when I was in recruitment And I said, so what's your ideal client? And he looked over his shoulder conspiratorially and got up and closed the door. I thought, well, this is going to be good. And he said, ideal client is a new chief executive with a vision. And he's got a hostile board. And he brings us in and he pays us a £1,000 a page for a 1,000-page report. And he says, McKinsey told me to do it. And then the report sits on a shelf and gathers dust. Yeah. And I do have a problem with private equity and VC, but I also have a problem with the consultancy world because that seems to be quite prevalent. You get the cookie cutter approach. You get one of their top performers um, or high performers coming in to make the sale. Next rung down to manage your project. And then you get a bunch of MBAs trying to pay off their debts doing the work. And if you're a small business, you're going to get someone from the middle area of mush doing the sale, but you're being seduced by the brand. Uh, You get someone from the low end, from the middle area of mush, from managing your project. And you get the people who can't be placed anywhere else uh, working on your deal. I have a book next to me called Dangerous Company by Charlie Madigan and James O'Shea. It's out of date. It's called Dangerous Company. And it was how the big four or big six managed to kill businesses. And I'm minded of one uh, that KPMG ran called Figgy International. And it was a company that had been built up over the lifetime of the father to 300 million. And KPMG came up with this concept of the world-class business. Anyway, within three years, they'd managed to take it from 300 million to 3 million uh, under the management of the sun and KPMG's guidance. Mm -hmm. And again, you've got to be really careful. When you're taking advice, take advice from people who have scar tissue, not who come from the world of theory, and do your research. Make sure that you get people who have your interests at heart and your customers' interests at heart. If you let your greed get in the way, if you get seduced by a big brand, if you allow people whose Selfish self-interest is driving them rather than your interest and the interest of your business long-term, then run a mile. But too often, people get in a hurry because they bought into this story that you need to grow fast. And it's all about the land grab. And I, I see businesses fail time and time again because they're being seduced into looking at the wrong end of the problem. And they're not asking good questions. They're not asking the right questions. How do we grow sustainably? How do we grow a business that solves problems that our customers actually have a need to solve? My pal, Jerry Lemberg, was one of the four founders of Fairchild Semiconductor. and What was really interesting was his definition of an entrepreneur is generally they are someone who creates an elegant solution to a problem that doesn't exist. and. You've got to focus on the right end of the problem. If you cannot solve a problem that has been paid to be solved by three or four customers, then you absolutely should not be going out to investors in the first place. You need to get your basics right. And one of the other things that I see is this massive investment in sales enablement technologies I think it was Bill Gates who said it, that if you put sales enablement technologies on top of a broken system, it will amplify what's broken. And if you put it on good foundations, then it will amplify the good. But the problem is that unless you've got those basics right, you really aren't going to grow a good business. And what you'll end up doing is more of the wrong things. So let's take that conversation a little bit deeper. When you look at these businesses that you invest in, you, you know, they're well-run businesses. What does a well-run business look like at its core when you're looking at the nuts and bolts?
1: I think the interesting thing, when you know a little bit about business, you can see the faults in every business. You can see how they can be run better. When you know more about business, you realize that actually these companies can, can run very Effectively, in what appears to be a very inefficient manner, and I I was taught this lesson at an early age. I had a a mobile value added services company back this is pre iPhone, this is back where mobile value added services was kind of SMS notifications and ringtones and logos and that sort of thing. And I was trying to sell to a woman who later became a, a very good mentor of mine, and she had a A marketing company that did below the line marketing she had 500 people working for her and i was trying to sell her on institute like i didn't know what i was doing i was a kid and i was trying to sell her on using sms to to market to her clients rather than a product that she could have been selling to to her clients and i kind of went through the yeah the the usual show and show and tell and explain what a brilliant technology this was and how it was going to transform the world. And this was probably in uh, 2004 or something. So I got to the end of the presentation. And she said, uh, I suppose you're going to tell me I should have a website too. I like, what? You don't have a website? And like this, this is, yeah, everyone had a website at this point. And she said, no, because everyone that comes in and tries to tell me that I should have a website is making less money than I do. I know all my clients, they know me, I know how to sell to them. I've got 500 employees, I've got more money than I can possibly work with. I don't want a website, I don't want your SMS solution. (laughs) And I was like, right, I need to learn from this woman. So I uh, put my ego away took her out for lunch and started asking questions. One of the things that sort of became apparent was that, you know, my solution wouldn't, wouldn't work for her. And, and actually, when you look at these small businesses, yes, they have some commonalities, but they all run very differently. And you you realize that companies can run very effectively, yet what it it looks inefficient. So you can have somebody that is a complete micromanager and The culture to me is just unbearable to watch. Like, yeah, there's this bottleneck as everything goes up, but for that company, it seems to work. And you can have another company where the the founder's completely laissez-faire and leaves everything, and you're terrified that something stupid is going to happen. Yet that company seems to work very well. And this is where the kind of the MBA approach of well, actually, what we need to do is we need to put in these systems and, and processes. And you're running your whole CRM with an Excel spreadsheet. That's nuts. We need to put in this amazing system that will kill everything for the next three years. But then it will be amazing. Yeah, there's these kind of one-stop solutions that actually can do more damage than than good. So it amazes me seeing the variety and, and the success of these companies that um, on the face of it look quite ridiculously badly run
0: my pal eddie obeng is a how can one put this he's an outlier and he runs change programs all virtually through his platform cube which is really very interesting but he's never had a project fail and again what we need to understand is that whenever you're trying to introduce change you're changing. If you change one part of a system, it has unintended consequences on, another, on other parts. And if you think of it like taking a photograph uh, using an SLR camera, you've got shutter speed, you've got aperture, and you've got film speed. And if you change one and you don't change the others, then you're going to end up with either a washed out or a dark picture. And the same thing needs to happen whenever you're creating change within an organization it's really important that you understand what the knock-on or ripple effect is of making change. So introducing a CRM system may be great, but in isolation and without taking the users into account, imposing it from above is invariably going to end up just being another administrative burden. And then the only people it's serving are the auditors, people up the top who want to audit the sales process, but don't really understand what the sales process is about. And when I look at conversation I had with Ian Dodds, Ian Dodds was the a guy who turned around all the crappy factories in ICI for 20 years. And he never once had a program that failed because he actually listened. He paid attention. He had made sure people felt heard. And his big driver was inclusiveness and diversity. And you touched on something yeah. of that right at the beginning. I'm just about to start a book that I was recommended called Brotopia, which is the male domination within tech companies in Silicon Valley. And it just strikes me as crazy. You know, 50% of the population, or 52% of the population, is female. And okay. they get no money. They don't have top jobs. And they're next to none of them in tech. Certainly in, on the technical side, uh, there are a few in sales and in HR But I think it was probably about 12, 13 years ago, the first female board member on Sony's board. I don't imagine there are many more. And so, again, when when you're looking at businesses, are you looking at uh, their diversity balance
1: at all? Our board is 50% women. And the businesses that we have in the group, I think 30% of them are run by women. I think that will grow over time. And I think for for a couple of reasons. One, I think, fortunately, there are more women going into entrepreneurship. But I also think that probably they are more inclined to make decisions around longevity rather than growth for the sake of growth. So our model kind of lends us itself to that. I think when you're talking... Yeah, so you're talking about so, your mate who did all these projects that worked and he did it by listening and getting that buy-in. And I think that's the key that is missed. You know, a lot of what we do is really around the psychology, so the, the languaging of everything that we do. We don't talk to the market. I talk about the fact that we're doing these acquisitions, but to the business owners, they're taking their company public through using us as a, as a model. They have full autonomy. Them and their peers own seventy percent of the company. So ultimately, that they have control, and that psychology is very important. Because if I if I explain this to anyone with any entrepreneurial background, I explain our model, they get it straight away. They can't understand why more people don't do this. If I explain it to an investment banker, they don't understand it at all. Like they, the first question I get asked is why would you trust the entrepreneur? Why, why wouldn't you fire them? And put, put in a, literally, why wouldn't you fire them and put in a real manager with a real manager being a 32-year-old and an MBA? But that's where they come at it. And they come at it from, to be fair to them, if you live your life in a balance sheet, model doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, We end up, at oh, end of this year, we'll have 20 companies with 20 CFOs. If you live in a balance sheet, that doesn't make sense. You fire 17 of the CFOs and you consolidate the finance function. But the minute you do that, you're back to an accountant telling an entrepreneur how they should run their business and and the whole thing falls apart again. So that psychology is very important. And I think the diversity that you're talking about is key. And I think, you know, it's kind of, uh, I was reading something the other day about how there's sort of a backlash against these cookie cutter approach. So you kind of got McDonald's that has taken over the world. And then a few years ago, Airbnb came along and everyone thought, well, nobody's going to want to stay in somebody else's house. But actually what he found was business travels were bored, silly of another top hotel. Uh, and so they actually wanted some variety. And then you kind of had the whole hipster trend of, locally produced beers and and that sort of stuff and these locally produced beers are very ineffective yeah they don't make much profit they don't scale but there is kind of a push towards something that's authentic and something that's different and that variety and actually that variety is is critical in nature because it allows things to fail and things to thrive and taking it a little bit further like you know there's this fear that there's now only like three banana strains in in the world there used to be hundreds of thousands of different types of bananas and they've been right. commoditized down to one two thing. so there's one mm-hmm. virus that could wipe out the entire banana uh Industry. Yeah, supply yeah mm-hmm. when you're coming back to this this sort of di- diversity and and longevity the way we think of mbh corporation is not as a company but as an ecosystem that attracts good businesses. And if you think of ecosystems, ecosystems survive when you can attract good innovation. We we don't need to be the people that keep innovating and coming up with it. We just need to be a good home for companies. So entire industries will come and go. But as long as we can offer more value to small businesses, then we should create a, a thriving ecosystem, which hopefully can uh, last a bit longer. So yeah, I think diversity is critical.
0: I think you've reminded me of a quote from Charles Darwin in The Descent of Man, which is, ignorance more frequently begets confidence than does knowledge. And (laughs) that's (laughs) truly depressing. I think it's called the Dunning-Kruger effect, where people become exceptionally confident with limited information. And they are incredibly destructive. You only have to look at what's happened over here in the last couple of years. It was Michael Gove said, we don't want to listen to experts. The other end of the Dunning-Kruger effect is that experts question um, their value, and they don't know how to communicate uh, their value effectively. And so it's easy for someone with bluster and lots of self-confidence to override them. And you only have to look at the... Back to private equity and
1: venture capital again. Back to (laughs) private equity and
0: venture capital. Okay. One thing that I would like to point out there to the audience as well is that MBH in your first year as a public company, you actually not only managed to grow, but you paid a dividend in the midst of all of this crisis. How did your investors respond?
1: So I think our investors haven't really figured out what we're doing yet so we're still pretty early and we didn't do in the first year we really focused on getting the first companies into the group now that we we only put out our 2019 numbers about a month or so ago and announced that dividend then so may 2020 depending on when you're listening to this now we're kind of going out to the market and sort of sharing the message so yeah i think look it's. We're big believers that profits should be returned to shareholders. We we don't need our profit in order to to grow. We're not. I mean, normally when you have a fast growth company, we grew our revenue three hundred percent, our EBIT one hundred ninety percent last year. Normally companies are burning up their profits in order to to fund that growth. Uh, We're not. We're using our stock or our own bonds to do those acquisitions. So. We can return capital to shareholders. It wasn't as rich a dividend as we had hoped, but um, there's that—that uh, that was more sort of an prudence to keep a little bit back in case uh, this this thing goes on longer than investors. Yeah, they're always a little bit cautious when it's a it's a new model and they don't quite understand it. And uh, like I said, that the fact that investment bankers. Always ask about why we would trust entrepreneurs. That's kind of a mindset that we have to <laughs> battle against. But um, yeah, no, I think more and more are getting on board with it and, and like the model. So, what are you struggling
0: with? What are you wrestling with at the moment?
1: We've done a pretty good job of getting the word out to small business owners. We've written a couple of books on the model. So, we have quite a lot of small businesses in there. As a business, we're, we're doing pretty well at, at the moment just on a, on a personal level, I am kind of struggling with kind of what, what's going on in, in the world at, at the moment. I think I, I've kind of, I've always done a good job of trying to uh, avoid the news and, and social media, keep it all at, at an arm's length. And, and I mean, I'm fairly prolific when it comes to putting content out, but I don't tend to get distracted by it. But just the last year or so it's it's um such such compelling drama and it irritates the hell out of me that i i'm getting sucked into it because it's you know i'm not it's not impacting anything in a positive way yeah it just frustrates me that i i am getting sucked into it but it it is compelling drama for sure
0: (laughs) it it is definitely i mean I, i i haven't watched the news for 25 years And the last couple of years, I've been sucked into it. And now I have to ration it. So I'll look at it when I finished work. And uh, I'll only look at it for about 10 minutes. And uh, you've got to stay off Twitter, because that's just um, a black hole. OK. So tell me this. What, What are you reading, watching, listening to that's influencing you?
1: trying to avoid exactly <laughs> we <recession. laughs> no I mean yeah, very really like, like yourself, I, I kind of uh, deliberately have to try and uh, keep myself away from it, make sure that I'm having conversations and, and part of it is that everyone asks your opinion on stuff that's happening, and so you kind of get sucked back into it. so I sort of make a point of connecting with other business owners that that share a mindset with me I, I read a lot of books. There's an author, a UK author, called Ivan Fallon. Most of his books are out of print now, but he um, wrote some brilliant books in the 80s on people like Sir James Goldsmith, who did, who sort of broke up a lot of the conglomerates in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, he wrote about the Saatchi brothers, and he had, he had really good access to them. And it, it's, quite, it's quite dry. But he goes into a lot of those deals that they did in great depth, and and it's uh, fascinating to kind of see those insights. I kind of like going back and touching on those. So these um, are business quite,
0: biographies.
1: Yeah, business biographies. Well, what's interesting about the one on the Saatchi brothers is that there's this minor character, their their CFO, who leaves about halfway through the book, called Sir Martin Sorrell, or Martin ah, right. as well was it at the time. And then you can see what what he's done since. That's quite interesting. I'm quite interested in kind of looking at innovations in finance. So, junk bonds was a. I think Inc. magazine said junk bonds was the biggest innovation to happen in corporate America <laughs> in in the 20th century. But what it did was it it was a new tool to inject masses of amounts of capital into corporate America, which basically paid for the internet and paid for mobile phones and paid for planes and everything else. And there's never really been an innovation like that in small business. And that's kind of what we're hoping that by creating a a product that investors can get in and out of quickly, which is a PLC environment, but then plugging that into the small business you, mean to, you know, basically small businesses make up 50% of the world's GDP yet they're completely off limits to the finance world because they're illiquid and risky so yeah well what we're hoping is that we can start to redress that balance a little bit and, and reconnect some of that capital with the people that actually create the value in the world
0: without the negative impact of being a junk bond
1: without that and some of the insider trading and stuff that went on at the same, <laughs> same time as, as that. Okay. So you've got a golden ticket
0: and you could whisper in the ear of the idiot Callum, age 23, who knew everything. He was immortal and invincible. What advice would you give him? Don't
1: need to do shots at the end of the night. It's not to <laughs> anything to anyone. <laughs> uh, but I think I spent a lot of time trying to reinvent the wheel when I was younger. Um, I w- wish I had spent less time trying to prove how clever I was and more time trying to figure out how to help people that were already successful. I would have learned a lot more, a lot quicker. So as you know, I wouldn't have listened to myself. So it really
0: <laughs> On that note, what are the best lessons that you've learned from your entrepreneurs that you've invested in?
1: One of the lessons that I learned, and it kind of ties to, to that earlier point, was... I started becoming more successful when I stopped trying to figure everything out myself and started asking the question, who? So when there's a problem in the business, rather than trying to figure out what the answer is, start going, "What? who already knows the answer to this? Who would benefit the most if I solve this? Who can I talk to that that can, can get us there quicker? That actually is a, you can always progress with a who question? Whereas what I used to do was just go straight to how and try and figure out how. That didn't work so well.
0: I interviewed Daniel Marcos, who is Vern harnish's partner in I, the I
1: introduced him to you.
0: Ah, right. Yes, you did, and uh, that was his. It was the. It was the who. So oh, really? thank you for that. Yeah, and um, that that was his lesson.
1: Yeah, I think you probably got that from me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can take the credit. <laughs> I'll, 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 tell, I'll tell people it was you. So Callum, thank you so much. This has been incredibly insightful and very helpful. How can people get hold of you?
1: LinkedIn is probably the best form. I tend to be fairly active on, on that. and I've got someone that can filter through uh, that for me. So Callum Lang on LinkedIn. I am on Twitter as well, Lang Callum. But yeah, please please reach out. And if people want to invest in MBH? MBH Corporation, PLC. The ticker is M8H. And we'd love to have you on board. Uh, we, I think we're probably the most transparent PLC that you will ever invest in. We share a lot. So go go and check out MBH on LinkedIn. We post interviews with the principals and various other bits pretty much every day. so and get to see behind the scenes.
0: And is there a minimum entry level?
1: No, if you're buying on market, you can go in with a fiver.
0: Okay, cool. Callum Lang, thank you so much. Really appreciate it.
1: Pleasure, Marcus. Always always fun to chat.
0: So this is Marcus Cowkey signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you think that you would be a good guest or you know someone who would be a good guest then please email me at mcauchi at sandler.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.